Welcome to Preservation Oaks, coming to you from Salt Lake City. This is the program where we learn more about historical and genealogical societies across the country. Today our guest is Dave McFarland, director of the Montgomery County Historical Society located in Red Oak, Iowa. For our listeners, here's a short biography of our guest. Dave McFarland was born in Red Oak. He's a U.S. Navy veteran. Dave spent 20 years working with the Ever Ready Battery Company and then went back to college, earned a degree, and taught history for 10 years. And then Dave got his second wind and became the director of the Montgomery County Historical Society. You folks in Montgomery County are extremely lucky to have Dave as your Historical Society director. He has a wealth of knowledge and ideas to lead the society in the 21st century. Anyone listening who is researching family that lived in this area, or if you're a resident of Montgomery County, Iowa, please support this great society. You can reach them at www.mocohistorycenter.org or their phone number is 712-623-2289 or you can send an email to mchsociety, nope, mchsociet, without the Y, at myfmtc.com. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, Dave and audience, I have a bit of a cold today, so please excuse my voice, and I'm, you may hear sniffles, uh, but it'll go away. I got to tell you, Dave, I've never been to Montgomery County, Iowa, but I went on Google Earth and went up and down the Red Oak streets virtually. You have a beautiful place there. You have beautiful homes all through Red Oak with green, well-kept lawns. It's like picture perfect how lucky you are. It typical small town, you know, USA. People here have a real good sense of value and take care of their homes and things like that. So, yeah, it makes for a nice place to be from. Yeah, it's a nice place. Uh, you have to tell me though how to pronounce the name of the river running to the east of Red Oak. Something like a Nishab Nishabotna or something. Nishnabotna. Nishnabotna, and in the Iowa language, it means cross by boat. Oh, I'll be darned. Okay, cross by boat. So it was originally Native American. Yes. Does uh, A lot of the names that you'll see around here are the same thing. Okay. Does the, uh, does the river have barge traffic with the agricultural um, supplies or agricultural products going up and down? No, <laughs> it's not that big a river. It's uh, small boats, uh, you know, canoes, kayaks, uh, airboats, that sort of thing is about as large a traffic as it gets. Oh, cool. I noticed also uh, while I was browsing on uh, Google Earth that the town has a town square, and, and that's really cool. Um, I noticed that from time to time, American flags are put there on specific dates. And it has a historic fountain. There's like art sculptures and monuments in the town square. That's really nice, Dave. Well, it's a source of pride. And we're kind of a, a little bit of an anachronism. Most town squares uh, have their courthouse in the square. Our square was already well established before we built our courthouse. And most of the things you see in the park are war memorials. There is a large fountain at the very center of the park. It was a World War I mo monument 
dedicated to the men that served from Montgomery County in World War One, and they served with the 42nd Division, known as the Rainbow Division. So the fountain is lit up at night in multicolors to represent that. Oh, that's cool. Wow. That's really, really nice. Um, I noticed on Google Earth that there's a lot of greenhouses in the in the town. What's all that about? I would suspect that since you're in Iowa and have that wonderful soil that you wouldn't need greenhouses. Well, it's more of a uh, commercial venture. Uh, it's something that started many, many years ago. We actually had several different greenhouses, but uh, they produce flowers uh, on, on, for the wholesale market selling to florists and outlets around the country and stuff. It's actually quite a large operation and has been there for many, many years. Yeah, it's very, it's huge. The greenhouses cover a lot of space, a lot of area. Um, I noticed that oh. in the town you have a lot of church events and there's a great deal of community engagement with the society. That's really good. Churches is a big part of a lot of uh, people's lives here and stuff. Um, we have a program here at the History Center. We're trying to preserve the history of a lot of the old country churches. We were actually able to save the oldest church in the county that was built in uh, right at the time, just shortly after the Civil War. Oh, cool. I didn't see that on there, um, but that, that is really nice. Uh, I really like the artwork on the Firehouse Restaurant, though. They have a painted or you know they have painted i guess a horse-drawn old-time fire engine on the wall and it's really cool that is the handiwork of jim hoskinson local artist he came here a few years ago well he originally came his family came from just east of here and then he lived in colorado for a while and then came back a few years ago and he's actually a board member of our historical society and quite an artist the the thing that I really, really liked, I mean, the it, it is just magnificent, is that historical courthouse. Uh, that is that is really something. That And is that Gothic architecture? It's kind of a Gothic revival uh, made out of Missouri sandstone. Uh, it's kind of, kind of another one of those funny little stories. Actually, when it was being built, it was not a popular project. It, uh, a lot of people thought it was too ambitious and too costly. It took a lot of effort to get people behind it. It was, uh, we had a company here for many, many years. It was known as the Murphy Calendar Company. Okay. And it kind of got its original start by promoting the courthouse, they did a woodblock engraving for a little newspaper that existed back there in the 18, uh, 1888 and sold ads around it and got them kind of started in the art calendar business oh, and everything. But the courthouse ran over budget and had to, ran over schedule and they had to hire new contractors and everything. But now it's become kind of a keynote thing for the community, one of the most recognizable landmarks in the area. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Um, I know you have a county fair every year there, and do you, does the society have a booth at the fair? No, recently we've kind of, we've got some buildings and things at the fairgrounds that are, you know, featured. There's a country school and an old log cabin there and stuff, but uh, 
we mostly kind of stay in our little domain up here because it's kind of hard to move things around and, and find people to do all those sort of things. But we have done activities there, and we're talking about uh, uh, kind of an ambitious little project here in the future that will be done in cooperation with the fair board. Oh, that's fantastic. In your pre-years, pre-director, have you always been interested in history? What, oh, yes. What uh, as a small boy, my grandmother that raised me, she would read me uh, books and things, and we pretty much always read things that were about history and that sort of thing. So that, that abiding love of history came early. Fantastic. Um, you got in as the director, you began as the director, and you started looking at the files in the Historical Society. Did you run across any funny or interesting stories? Uh, well, I tell you what, we ran across enough that I wrote a book on a lot of it, oh. and they laugh, uh, they tease me now that I should write volumes two and three. Um, there's just any uh, number of wonderful stories. One of my favorites that I'm hoping sometime in the future to have another book uh, put out is uh, the history of Jason Packard. He, a uh, young man that uh, came originally from New York, he and his wife came here in the uh, early days, the 1850s of Montgomery County history uh, to claim a land grant that was given to her father in lieu of a military pension. And they came and he became our first, uh, well, I should back up a little bit here. As a boy, he fell out of a wagon and was run over and the doctor said, he wasn't going to live. Oh. Well, he lived, and then the doctor pronounced that, well, he'd never amount to anything. He graduated law school, became one of the first telegraph operators west of the Mississippi River, came here, became our county treasurer, and for uh, 18 years was our county treasurer and made the claim that he never lost a dollar of county money including a period during the Civil War that he buried the county treasury under a haystack <laughs> so that the Confederate raiders would not get it and steal it. <laughs> That's cool. And then he went on, uh, his first house he built here was round and wooden with vertical uh, boards going up and down instead of horizontal like what we normally think on construction. Later, they moved our county seat over, and he built a house just north of Red Oak here that was six-sided and made out of stone. And it's such an intricate engineering thing. I used to use it when I was teaching school. I used to use as a geography or geo uh, geometry uh, problem that you had to figure out roof angles and stuff on this building. Oh, yeah. And it has a wonderful history. I tell people that visit the History Center that there's 99 stories, or I should say 100 stories, about the Packard House, and 99 of them aren't true. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you for that, Dave. Uh, that's a great story. Uh, around 2006, I think it is, your society built a brand new 14,000 square foot facility. Uh, it is really gorgeous. Can you tell us more about it? Well, the society was actually formed back in 1945 at the closing of World War II, 
and it kind of bounced around. It was in the basement of the library. It was in an old grocery store. And finally, we got land where we uh, now currently sit, and we built a small, modest little metal building, and that was the society home for a while. And then through uh, fundraising and stuff by a lot of local people, we were able to build this new building, and it's not only a source of pride for us, but it's kind of a source of envy for a lot of other historical societies yeah. around the country and stuff. Um, I was telling you earlier. I really earlier, can't brag on it enough. Well, I can't either. I, I I saw it, and what I wanted was to see was more inside pictures of it. It's just beautiful. It really is. Uh, it was kind of funny one day. I had a, a gentleman that I'd been conversing with from the State Historical Society, and he says, well, I'm going to be coming through the area, and I'm going to stop and visit with you. And he walked in the door, and he was kind of dumbstruck, and he stood there, and I says, what's the matter? And he says, well, when you sent me all the information about the History Center and everything, he says, I thought you were exaggerating and lying to me, but you're not. <laughs> Yeah, it really is beautiful. That you guys there in Montgomery County must be really proud of that, uh, and the work that went into fundraising and and making it a reality. That's great. Um, I noticed the community on has a a lot of really great uh, resources like that. We have, you know, a lovely downtown, and we have a historical home tour that we do. We have a really wonderful YMCA and just any number of things like that that are pluses for the community. Yeah, that's great. And that's very, I mean, a lot of societies, to your point, would be very envious of that. Um, that doesn't always happen, and that's really nice. I yeah, a lot of, it's, it's a tough business. Uh, you know, a lot of them get like an old storefront or something like that and convert it, yeah. whereas we have a, a purpose-built one. And we've we've kind of taken on the role as a kind of a community center also. We have a large meeting room that people can rent and use for, we've had everything from birthday parties to funeral receptions in there. We even have weddings in there. Actually, I got married and had my wedding in there. Oh, wow. And we rent our old building uh, to the senior center program here in Montgomery County in Red Oak. Uh, the seniors meet there and have a meal site, and that's where the Meals on Wheels goes out to homebound people. We've been, uh, we've had programs with the Boy Scouts, uh, Girl Scouts. Uh, we are the home now to, of the Masons. They meet here. Uh, just any number of organizations and community things kind of base out of here. That's fantastic. I. Uh... I was reading on your website, and, and this goes to the conversation, the History Center is more than a simple museum filled with dusty artifacts. And, and that's wonderful. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Can, uh, can you tell us about the society and, the, and sort of the people you serve uh, and your membership and the mission? Well, what we, we kind of have, a, I guess, a little different approach. We started out and luckily with our fundraisers and one thing or another, that we got a, a fair amount of money. It's hard to keep uh, an entity like this going, and I think that's where a lot of them struggle. But we set up a pretty healthy endowment fund that 
if the stock market does well, we do pretty well and are almost self-sufficient. But that puts us in the position that if we want to do something new and above and beyond what we have now, we have to apply for grants or seek donations and that sort of thing. Well, I took the philosophy that I had when I taught history. If you ask a group of people when they were in school if they thought history was boring, 99% of them will say yes. And that was the thing I always ran into when I taught history. So I came up with a different approach. It's not about the artifacts and that sort of thing. It's about the people and the stories that goes with those artifacts. And that's what we try to develop is the story. Just like Jason Packard, we have pictures of his house and different things his that he left behind in his day and time. But it's his story and his wife's story that makes it really appealing and really interesting. Yeah. But we laugh about it that it's haunted and we have stories to prove that in a certain context it is haunted. Oh, wow. Um, we act, as, as like I said before, as a community center. We also act as uh, a resource to come and learn things. We have kind of an open-door policy. We have a little area we kind of call the pit that we have chairs lined up, and people just come in and sit down and visit. Oh, and great. it makes it more of a – it's not about learning dates and names and events that are kind of cold and sterile. It's about getting that personal feel and getting in touch with it. I really it's kind of a, a kind of a successful way to do it. I think. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that's really great. It's refreshing that you took that view and and went down that path. Speaking of haunted, I read that there's a murder house in the Liska. You know anything Beliska. about that? Uh, yeah, that's kind of a. But that's kind of a mixed deal for the people here, especially in Villisca. Uh, there was a family, uh, Joe and Sarah Moore, that lived in Villisca. He was a businessman over there. And in 1912, they, um, he was working hard. Uh, Bob worked for a hardware company, made enough money that he started his own hardware company over there on the square of Villisca. And uh, in 1912, June of 1912, they had a Christmas program, or no, I shouldn't say Christmas program, children's program, uh, Sunday night at the church just up the street. And that evening they got done late and they proceeded to go home. And they were two young girls, Lena and Ina Stillinger, that lived just a short ways out in the country. They were supposed to go to their grandmother's house that was just a block and a half away. Okay. But there was a dispute going on about the streetlights, and the power company had turned off the power to the streetlights, and Lena and Ina were afraid to walk the other block and a half in the dark, so they called home and asked permission to stay with the Moors that night. Okay. Somehow and some way, and it's unsolved, but somebody went into the house uh, or was in the house already, and during the night, they proceeded to take an axe, and they killed Joe and Sarah, their four children, and Lena and Ina. Oh. And it still it ranks as the worst murder uh, 
in the history of Iowa, and it is pretty much unsolved. Wow. So they started, they took the house and made it a, a sightseeing place? Yes, you know, and it's kind of a mixed deal, as I said. It's always been a contentious deal. The, the thing boiled down to that everybody split and decided it was either a gentleman by the name of F.F. Uh, F. Jones, who was well-to-do and a business rival of Joe Moore, ruined his life, but half the town thought it was Jones. The other half thought it was the Reverend George Lynn, uh, Lynn Kelly, who was kind of a nutcase, but I don't think was really violent. And the town split down the middle. Half the town thought it was uh, Kelly. Half the town thought it was Jones. If your kids or if your kids uh, or parents thought that uh, Jones did it, they weren't allowed to play with the kids of the people that thought Jones did it. And oh, it's been wow. a source of contention even to this day. I've had people in the community approach me that if they raised the money, could they move the house over here to the History Center because it's a sore subject. Yeah. Not always been handled with the most decorum and tact, but it's a piece of our history. We have displays and uh, archives on it here. We have uh, some of the only existing photographs of the uh, grand jury trials and things like that. Um, became real good friends with Dr. Epperly, who really is the number one leading expert and has been studying it since 1959. Wow. Uh, that's fantastic. That's what a story. Yeah, I'm sorry to see that it's sort of a sightseeing ogre there in um, Villisca. Maybe you'll inherit it someday. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things you just don't quite know. The uh, the only things that really exist that are proven artifacts is there was a kerosene lamp and the axe, and they were actually the axe. Were, uh, there was a lot of contention over the axe and ownership and all of that, and was sent to the state historical society for safekeeping and kind of as neutral ground. We've had a lot of discussions about bringing it back and putting it on display here at the History Center, and it was here in 2012 for the 100th anniversary. And even personally, well, I grew up in Villisca in my younger years, okay. and even for me, it's kind of a, I don't know, unsettling. I, I don't know how much I like having the acts around, even. Yeah, I can't blame you there. Thank you for that story or that history. I really appreciate it. What is the history of Red Oak? When was it settled? Who settled it? Well, um, in the mid nineteen or eighteen fifties, two uh, there was a gentleman from Page County filed a claim on um, it's where the Red Oak Creek comes down, and there's a lot of Red Oak trees that grow along it. So that's how it got its got its name and flows into the Nishinabotna River. And this gentleman from uh, Page County to the south here filed a claim on it, but the claim didn't hold up. And then a gentleman by the name of Shank filed claim on land north of the creek, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Pleasant Jones filed claim on the south of the creek. <laughs> uh, for a long time, it was just a few little rustic cabins. There was a, 
a business open here, kind of a general store a little bit, but you know, didn't even classify hardly as a village. Then uh, about a mile to the north was a, another settlement called Oro on the river, and it had the post office. Well, in uh, 1858, they moved the post office from Oro to Red Oak, and then it started to grow. Oh, yeah. Um, they came up with the name of Red Oak Junction, and this is one of those deals that kind of gets to be interesting. There's a big contention, and it has been promoted for years, that it was because of the junction of the railroads, but it was actually the junction of roads. Uh, there was two stage lines that came through here, uh, and a freight road and everything, and it became known as Red Oak Junction, and was that up until uh, 1902 when they dropped the junction, it just became Red Oak. It quickly became kind of a commercial center. Then in 1869, the railroad came, and it really started to explode. Oh, yeah. And soon became a city, and at one time was a, a growing, bustling economic center in southwest Iowa. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, there, I noticed a couple of names outstanding in the town. One was Houghton. The other one was Coolbaugh. If I'm pronouncing those right, um, what do yeah, those mean? Close. What do those mean uh, in history? Houghton was a uh, financier, businessman. He had started a uh, large bank that is still going to this day. Is one of the major banks here in town. Kubal, like a lot of things, uh, worked on the railroad. Okay. Uh, you'll see a lot of things that relate back to the railroad. I noticed their names. Like I think there's a street name of Kubal, and there's a building with Houghton on it. Does the society have the history of these buildings? Yes. That's one of the things that we focus on is, uh, in fact, a few years ago, we did, uh, as part of a uh, downtown historic district declaration, my wife did most of the work, but she researched all of the buildings in a six-block area and has the records of what was in that building what businesses and what offices were in those buildings up through the years. Um, and it makes a, a nice resource. And a lot of times when we have a new business come into town, we will dig out an old photograph of the business, you know, from the late 1800s or uh, early 1900s, and we'll have it printed up and give it to the business because they can kind of showcase their business. Uh, in fact, here at the History Center in our lobby, we have a mural that goes around the, the second floor in the atrium, and it is a timeline of the downtown square, oh, and it starts great. with 1870 and the first brick building to go up, but most of the, the streets were dirt and the sidewalks were wood and the wood frame buildings, and then it is on the west side of the atrium in the lobby. And then on the north side, we have 1896 and some of the buildings. And then on the east side, we have uh, 1917. And then the south side, of, we have the square, what it looked like in 1937. My goodness, that is a history center. That's fantastic. I also noticed an old advertisement on a building that said Owl Cigars. And I haven't seen one of those in years. Is that worth preserving? Do you think you could move it? We're trying to get it preserved, uh, and there's been talk about several others. Uh, 
you mentioned something once about uh, that saving it or moving it to the History Center. Well, it's painted on a brick wall, so yeah. it's rather hard to move. But uh, a couple times it's been touched up and kind of restored and everything like that. Uh, there's no, a lot of things like that around town that, you know, are nice little pieces of the uh, past and stuff that need to be showcased and things like that. And we try to do that. Yeah, I mean, we're talking now, I mean, when I grew up, these buildings in these small towns, I grew up in a little town in Illinois with 600 people, then moved out to California uh, as part of my job, and we went from there. But uh, the thing that I'm, you know, starting to see more often now is that much of this old history is now more than 100 years old, more than a century. And it's just well worth looking at and preserving because you won't see it built like that ever again. And, you know, and they're beautiful. That's the thing. We have so much architecture, the big homes of early businessmen and stuff. Uh, oh, we, Thomas D. Murphy came here uh, and in the 1880s and 90s and went into partnership and became the operator of a the local newspaper that's still in existence. Okay. And he also, uh, he uh, was partnered with a gentleman back in uh, 1889, and they started a promotional printing company, and they printed, oh, church fans and books and you name it, and kind of struggled along through the years. And then in 1895, they separated from each other, and it's kind of an interesting little story. This Edmund Osborne and Thomas D. Murphy started this company, struggled, finally saw success, and then they were such opposites in personality, they separated. Osborne went east in 1897 and took the art printing part of the business, and Murphy stayed here and developed the newspaper printing deal, and then would go back to the art printing business in 1900, Osborne went to New Jersey and had the American Art Printing Company oh. up until uh, eight, 1957 or thereabouts when it sold out to a little unknown printing outfit called Hallmark. Oh. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's wonderful, some of these stories and stuff. Uh, I love, I love but, history. I just love listening you know, to you. The You're things such that a Murphy did, uh, we have photographs of it, of the inside of the building. The building they built in 1904 is still standing, but uh, they had book binderies and calendars and all of this thing that they printed. Wow. And they showed, these photographs will show like the proofing room and all the original artwork that was done. Uh, it would have been the envy of most art museums. Uh, we have several original paintings here that, like of uh, Thomas D. Murphy and his wife, Ina. We have a Henry Dobson painting that was a famous Scottish portrait painting. Wow. We have an original uh, oil that he did that was uh, contracted by Murphy, but was never used for an art calendar. And... That was quite a little endeavor to chase it down. Houghton, uh, they had one of the most beautiful buildings in Red Oak at one time on the corner of the square that you were mentioning. Sadly, it burnt in 1902, oh. and they rebuilt it a little simpler 
And then years, uh, about 1964, they uh, purchased a new plot of ground and built a new, more modern bank right across the street from our courthouse. But there's just all these wonderful places around town. We have our old armory that's just off the square. The soldiers from there marched off to at the end of the Spanish-American War and World War One, and then they, even World War Two, marched down Kubal Street that you mentioned and then up the hill to the depot and then left for Europe and stuff during World War II and World War One, and to the Philippines in the Spanish, at the end of the Spanish-American War. Wow. We have a, it used to be a federal building, and now it's regaled to just being our post office. And on the corner of it, we have a bronze plaque that is made from salvage brass and copper and stuff from the battleship Maine that was sunk at the beginning of the Spanish-American War, and it uh, cast, and it's one of about 60 that were made, and it says in memoriam of the battleship Maine. And it's because we had a young man from Red Oak that served on the Maine and went down with her in 1898. Oh, my. Okay. Is there anyone uh, in the Murphy building right now? Uh, a gentleman from De a young man from Des Moines bought it and was cleaning it up and everything. And this COVID pandemic has kind of dealt everybody a curveball, oh. and I think he's kind of slowed down on it now. But he was doing a real good job of trying to clean it up and maybe repurpose it and everything. Yeah, uh, we're still hoping that will become. That would be great because it's a big building. It's a nice building too. Well, oh, it's huge and. Inside is just unbelievable. The uh, hard maple floors, uh, the uh, framework, in, it's a brick on the outside, and the uprights and the timbers inside that support it are made out of cypress. Uh, it was an innovative building at the time. M uh, Murphy uh, Calendar built it. Uh, they sold public bonds to finance it. He said he thought it would take 10 years to pay it off. They paid it off in two with interest. He was so paranoid about things like fire, of course, working with inks and solvent paper, you could understand why. But it had sprinkler systems and fire doors and everything that were uh, pretty innovative at the time. And they said he saved enough money on his fire insurance to, like, to pay the interest on those bonds that he sold. Wow. Uh some people are so smart, you know, and back then you had to be sort of doubly smart because everything was very, very manual. I have to interrupt. It's time for our first break Okay. for a few minutes, so we'll take a break and then we'll come right back. Listeners, we'll be right back with the Montgomery County, Iowa Historical Society after these words. Uh, for those of you in Montgomery County, please um, consider donating your time and funding to the society. Um, they're preserving your area's history for you and your families. And we'll be right back. And now for a bit of selfless promotion. Hey, dudes, I hope you're doing well and enjoying the program. Please consider supporting MicroStream Radio. We can't do it without you. We rely solely on the generous financial support of individuals from all across the world to power programs which enrich lives, inspire minds, and celebrate diverse perspectives. A contribution of any amount makes you a member. 
Show your support today at www.patreon.com backslash microstreamradio. Your support allows us to bring you more unique and interesting content. We thank you so much. This is Dr. Paul Brennan, president of the Kailua Historical Society in Hawaii. And I listened to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. If you have a society in your area then please support them with both your volunteer time and your funding. The more support they have, the more they can benefit the community in terms of providing records for family research, and education for the public and students in grades K through 12. With adequate funding, the society can stand up a museum or sponsor historical and fun events in order to tell the historical story of the area and its inhabitants. Maintaining a society makes a huge difference in a community. Please don't wait. Show your support for your local historical or genealogical society today. They preserve our heritage and culture for existing and future children of all ages. Thank you. A while ago, we explained to you veterans and to your families how important it is for patients in Veterans Administration tuberculosis hospitals to cooperate with the doctors. Now, you see, if a tuberculosis patient insists on leaving the hospital prematurely against the advice of his doctor, well, that's his right. But you can see how dangerous this could be. Danger to the patient himself, in that he drags out his illness, makes his own recovery more difficult. Danger that he may expose to serious infection those he loves best, his family at home. Now therein lies a great responsibility for tuberculosis patients, and for their families. Following the doctor's advice may be hard, but it's sure to be wise. Remember, your doctor wants you to get well just as soon as possible. He's doing his part conscientiously. Do yours. Accept his professional advice. Stay in the hospital until your VA doctor tells you that you're well enough to go home. This is an alien from planet Zang, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks. Each week, MicroStream Radio will reach millions of people across the world through high-quality programs that connect our listeners to information and entertainment. This critical work is made possible by the contributions of individuals who believe in our mission. We are publicly funded. 100% of those funds help us to sustain existing programming and to grow. But this cannot happen without your generous support. Show your support today at www.patreon.com backslash microstreamradio. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. 
I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Mr. Dave McFarland from the Montgomery County, Iowa Historical Society, located in Red Oak, Iowa, which is also the county seat of government. For this segment, we're going to talk about the society's role in the community, what kinds of outreach and events and education are being done, especially any records or collections, whether they're on-site or online, the society maintains for the public and their members. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We'll pick up where we left off. Uh, I wanted to ask about your funding goals. So right now, we've got this COVID monster in the land, and everybody is sort of squeezed for funding these days, and it can be quite a challenge. What are your funding goals? What's your strategy? Uh, luckily, the the people that helped get this going, we we sent back money and invested it in endowment, and as long as those pay good interest rates, it kind of, you know, it pays for the electricity and the heat in the building and kind of keeps us going on that end. Uh, but that leaves us in the position that when we want to add a display or develop something new, we got to go looking for funds. And it, that boils down to either getting donations or grants. Um, we have a membership that we sell to people you know, that they can come and be, you know, even more active and get discounts with the History Center and everything. Yeah. We went from getting five and 6,000-plus visitors a year before COVID. Yeah. I don't know where we're going to end up this year. You know, uh, things are picking up somewhat, but we'll be lucky, I think, if we hit the 1,000 mark this year. Oh, yeah, it's so it's dealing us kind of a stiff blow. Yeah. As everybody else knows. How's the community doing? Uh, pretty well, actually. Uh, there's plenty of jobs available uh, and things are going. Uh, we'd like to see more businesses coming to town. We've got a couple new ones coming in. But we'd sure like to see the town grow more. Yeah. How's COVID been on the community? I should have been more specific hit us pretty hard. Uh, I don't think any harder than a lot of other communities, but, you know, when you have a, a town of less than 6,000 people and countywide we're only about 10,000, it doesn't take very many illnesses or deaths to make a pretty deep impact. I know we've had several uh, very close and uh, what I would, no better term than to call friends that we lost to COVID here at the History Center. So it's been a rough time. I know there's one society that I'm working with currently that um, on their website, they they put a appeal for stories from the community about their COVID experience. And they're collecting stories from the community and they're they're going to, you know, create some kind of a history. We have kind of a little, uh, we haven't done a lot with, you know, trying to preserve stories like that. I don't know. There, there seems like there's a little bit of a uh, tendency to be kind of closed about, you know, the families and stuff, this lost stuff. Yeah. We've had people come in and visit with us and donate things, you know, for loved ones that have fallen by the wayside. But we have kind of an interesting little display slash monument in the corner of the lobby. Back uh, in the closing days of World War One, we had the Spanish flu outbreak, 
and in 1919, uh, it hit the country and world, for that matter, and estimates run as high as 20 and 30 million people died from the Spanish flu there in the 1919-1920s, and it was an H1N1 type virus also, and so we kind of added on to that, and we have things about, you know, items that we've collected from the COVID pandemic, and we've kind of titled it as deja vu. Uh, almost 100 years to the date, and it's repeat, history's repeating itself. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, that's great. Wow. Um, what kind of education events do you have? What What do you provide, you know, and I know COVID has put quite a dent in things, but do you do outreach and education events? Yeah. We, uh, we have gone to uh, schools and stuff and done uh, displays and talks, uh, nursing homes even, you know, uh, later day, you know, education. Uh, we uh, get involved. The uh, schools here have a deal that we have a conservation area just outside the town, and every year they have a uh, Oregon Trail event where the kids from all the different schools come and they walk the trails. And we have they have uh, display areas set up and talks, and we quite often do that. Uh, we had a real fun time with them this year. Uh, we do, uh, well, one of the, my outstanding ones that I have, my own personal pride kind of kicks in here, but we had a high school in Arlington, Nebraska, which is quite a ways away, almost, well, it would be 100 miles to Arlington. It's a small community, and their uh, advanced placement programs, uh, students, we're doing a history project, and they decided to do it on the Underground Railroad oh, cool. during the, before the Civil War and stuff. And there was a gentleman by the name of William Merritt, who was from Red Oak. And they picked him as a topic and contacted us, and I think they were a little overwhelmed by what they got because we had such an abundance of information and whatnot and several books that he had written and everything. Oh, nice. The kids even came down a couple times from Arlington and visited and everything, and we helped them as, in every way we could with this project they were doing. And the end result was they applied for a National Parks Recognition of William Merritt Wallace, or Merritt, William, William Wallace, Wallace Merritt, excuse me on that one, and got him nominated, and his grave site is now on the National Parks Registry as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. That is fantastic. They came back later that year, and their teacher did a... Uh, a fundraiser type deal, and they had a story that they had collected about two runaway slave girls that escaped their master in Nebraska City, got across the Missouri River into Iowa, then walked to Chicago. From there, they were smuggled into Canada. He re recreated that walk, and at different points in the, the walk, he had different students came with him. Uh, their support driver gave out on them for part of the trip, and we went and got their camping in gear and would take it to the next campsite, you know, and then they would walk the distance. 
they spent two nights here at the History Center, and it was kind of funny when they got to Des Moines, they were having a big to-do over the whole thing and uh, invited all kinds of dignitaries, and they asked one of the kids what was their favorite thing on the trip, and they said the Montgomery County History Center. (laughs) (laughs) So we really had fun and very rewarding on that one. Yeah, that's and fantastic. national recognition for some of the things here in the community. I'll bet the community is really proud of that. Thank you for that. Um, the holiday events, I know you have annual events. Like I, I on the Internet, I saw Red Oak Junction Day and a corn boil. Uh, that's very interesting. Um, so it's like sort of like down in Louisiana where they have a crawfish kind of boil you guys come together yeah, and do pretty boil? much the um it got started uh years ago and then kind of faded and then got revitalized but junction days is usually at the end of the last week of june and they come together and trying to ha- uh they have different people act as chair that year and try and come up with ideas what events and things to have that year uh, and they have bed races and all kinds of crazy things, uh, barbecue cookouts and everything. And, you know, people come to town, you know, and kind of a blast from the past, you know. Well, everybody great. get together. They used to talk about in the old days that one time that there was uh, 1,500 wagons on wow. the square uh, on a Saturday night there in June for wow. the town celebration. That is fantastic. Do you have any pictures of that? Kind of harkening back to yesteryear, but with a modern spin. You have any pictures of that? Oh, we have all kinds of pictures of it through the different years and stuff. Uh, They used to be on the south side of the square. They had a big iron trough that went the whole length of the block long length of the south side of the square that was watering troughs just for the horses. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, Dave, do you does your society publish a newsletter? Off and on, we don't have, and and I would like to get more to that, where we would like at a set schedule. Uh, we publish them, you know, every once in a while, especially if we have something big going or new going on, that we'll do a newsletter. Yeah. Um, we have an annual meeting that you know all of our members are invited to attend to. Uh, Till COVID come up, we usually had entertainment and things like that at that and and dinners that went with it. But we've kind of had to cut back with that with the COVID. That's such but a shame. Maybe one of these days we'll get back to where we can start doing that again. Wouldn't that be wonderful to get back to sort of normal? Oh, wouldn't it? How do you keep the community itself informed about the progress that the that the society is? You know, like you have you have some kind of a strategy, you communicate the strategy, and then you have to uh, communicate the progress against the strategy. How are you doing that? Well, a lot of it is uh, we've got a wonderful newspaper editor uh, here uh, for the Red Oak Express, and then we have a smaller newspaper from Villisca and Stanton. And the newspaper does real well about promoting us and publishing things. In fact, I have an article coming out today in the Red Oak Express uh, about a, a house here in Red Oak that was purchased several years ago, and the, the new owners have completely remodeled it and restored it. 
and it has you know some historic significance and stuff. Um, we do do radio, and we've even done television ads, um, a lot of internet. Yeah, uh, Facebook and stuff seems to work really well. Yeah, a lot of people are on that. And maybe this radio program will help us. And I frankly love talking with you, and I, I love talking with historical societies and uh, genealogical societies. You folks in that community, in this community, just have a huge amount of expertise and historical background to share. It, and, you know, frankly, I just love it. So hopefully it'll help. I, I kind of got lost earlier. You were mentioning that you have the society building and then you have some other properties. What are the other properties? A cabin, I think I heard? We have two log cabins. They're the oldest existing structures in the county. And the one, I think, was probably about the third or fourth building built in the county, maybe. Wow. We have the uh, Cozad cabin and the uh, Pittsburgh one-room schoolhouse that sits on the county fairgrounds uh, just down the hill from where the History Center is at. And then here on the History Center property itself, we have our large main building, the 14,000 square foot building you mentioned, and our old building <coughs> right next door. We have a uh, barn that was built in 1881, wow. uh, timber frame peg and tenon barn that was built here, and an old corn crib. Uh, we have the stipe log cabin that kind of came from up in the northeast corner of the county. That cabin should have had wheels on it as much as it's moved. Uh, <laughs> then we have the uh, Wilson General Store and Post Office that was built in 1859, <coughs> just north of here. Um, then we have the Siola Church that we kind of talked about before. It's the oldest surviving church in Montgomery County, wow. built in 1871. A great little place. It used to sit along the stage line. Uh, Siola was a little community that uh, had the first post office in Montgomery County, and the church is pretty much the only surviving structure left of the, that community, and we moved it here a few years ago in order to save it. Now we, we've put it to use. We've had Christmas programs in there. We've had a couple weddings in there. It's been really rewarding to have that, see that old church come back into use and, and be revitalized and have people in the pews again and stuff. Do you need to and, um, take a drink of beverage? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of got a special place in my heart. Uh, when I was a small boy, my grandmother and I went to church there. And then wow. about, his, uh, oh, I suppose mid-70s, they kind of uh, quit using it. The denomination had faded away and quit using it, and they approached us about saving it. That was a project and took a lot of initiative and, and commitment and generosity on the part of the community. But we got it moved over here and sets right south of the building, uh, our main building, and has been pretty much restored. It has a new roof and new paint job and wow. all of that, and is just a beautiful little structure and great little piece of history. Are all these buildings open to the public? Yes, oh, absolutely. Uh, is there any kind of cost for for you know touring the buildings? No, we. Um, 
we used to, when I first came on, we used to charge at admission. And then we came up with thing uh, that's kind of surprising. And st uh, we used to charge with people for admission. And then if they wanted copies of research material, we'd charge them so much per copy and everything like that. And it seemed kind of extraneous to me. And then we started, we kind of experimented, and it had a lovely result. We started just going on free will donation. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, if you like what you see, donate. Um, if you find the information we provide you helpful, donate, and we get a lot more money than trying to nickel and dime it, so to speak, you yeah, know, charging quarter for a copy or something like that. People are, people really are much more generous and open yeah. about donating than they are being charged. Yep, absolutely. And they really appreciate the, the moment and the history, um, I'm sure. That's it. You know, uh, they will just be real free and ready to donate a lot of times if, they, if they've had a, an enriching and rewarding experience. And I've, got, I've got kind of a standing little deal. I defy people when they come in. I says, we have a varied enough collection of items. You know, we're big on art, big on military, even prehistory. I will give you your money back if you can't find something that doesn't catch your interest. <laughs> and I don't think I've had anybody yet <laughs> ask for their money back. Have you had anybody that approached you uh, to donate you know, maybe they have an artifact or a photograph, you know, something, and they say, you know, I'd like to donate that. Almost daily. Wow. That's one of our biggest problems. Uh, the 14,000 square feet, most of it is display area and some offices and stuff. And then we have a large room uh, that we, is our archive that we store artifacts in and stuff. And it's, to the point of overflowing. When I started here a little over 10 years ago, the play, the building was kind of empty. There wasn't a lot in it. Now our biggest problem is where we're going to go with it. We actually bought a outbuilding from a local company, a large storage building, and it has items in it that are stored. We have some storage in our old building. But uh, this morning I had a lady call, and she's coming from Colorado and she wants to come in and she has items that she wants to donate. I had uh, a family last week from Idaho that brought some family photographs and the like and donated. I mean, it's just unbelievable and wonderful the things that come in. Yeah, I imagine. Do you rotate that so people get to see? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We try to constantly, we have some exhibits that are permanent. We have a, a Native American dugout canoe that was found in the river just south of town. It's over 300 years old. Wow. It's pretty much a permanent display. The uh, Murphy Calendar Company is permanent, and but we try to add and change things in and out and we try to keep everything rotating. And one of the things I noticed when I first started was I had several people make comments along the line of, well, I was here three months ago. It hasn't changed any. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of made a commitment. We sat down with the board and knocked it and says, okay, this is going to be our commitment. We are going to change things all the time. So it, yeah. 
every month we have something new goes on display or a display gets changed out and it's fresh and new and something new and interesting all the time. I've got one historical society that does um, surveys like on the internet you can do survey monkey that kind of thing mm-hmm. and they survey their members um, and the community to, uh, you know at large to see what they want to see as the next exhibit. We haven't for, done anything that quite formal. Uh, we do ask, you know, uh, people that visit, and we at our annual meeting, we it's open to our membership, and they come in, and that's usually one of the subjects we discussed. You know, uh, what would you like to see different? What would you like to see new? Yeah. This sort of thing. But as I said, with the facility we've got, we've got so much. We usually don't get too much of a comment on things to add or anything because we have so much. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. Huh? Do you have a strategy for digitization of documents and photos going? I know that's a that's sort of big with historical societies right now. We have a, a, our research library, and we have bookcases, and we're getting to the point we're going to have to get some additional bookcases because we're filling up. But we have notebooks that anytime we get uh, documents or records or anything that seems to be in photographs, you name it. Uh, we go everything from cemetery records to military to histories on the towns, uh, school histories, all these sort of things, and we put them in there that's open to the public to come in and research. And then we have a dead uh, newspaper morgue that we have old newspapers that we can research. And then a few years ago, the county digitized a lot of the county records, and we got the hard copies. Oh, that's nice. Uh, the court records and the immigration books, uh, letters of intent and naturalization and stuff, we actually have the hard copies. Sometimes for people, that's, I had a lady that was trying to research her grand, great-grandfather one time, and I was gleaning information from her, and she mentioned the fact that he was a Mason, and we have their archives. Wow. And I called her back the next day, and I said, did you know your great-grandfather had a heart tattooed on his left wrist? <laughs> and she said, how in the world did you know that? And it was on his Masonic application. Oh, my. Right, you have and, any strategy to have online search capability? On your website? We have discussed it, but we will answer if people email us and things, you know, and request it. We will do online research for them. But kind of the thing that worries me and the other members uh, is that if we put too much digitally online, they'll quit coming to the door. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's always So we kind of, you know, we provide the service, but we don't really you know, make it entirely online. Yeah, I can see where you would struggle with that. Um, you must have a lot of, you know, you've got a lot going on, and you must have a lot of community support, and I imagine volunteers to keep it all running. What kinds of volunteer People opportunities? People are volunteering these days, and I hear this from everybody. Uh, it's a real struggle to get volunteers in. Yeah, because of COVID, you think? No. It's just the sign of the times, and we see it more overly than a lot of things. It's like all of these fraternal organizations, the Masons and uh, 
Odd Fellows and Eagles, the Elks, you know, all these different groups that used to be really, really big in the community. Yeah. Since COVID came, the Masons haven't had a meeting. Wow. And the Odd Fellows are pretty well closed down, you know, and you don't see this, you know, community joining and belonging to organizations. Uh, we have the Monday Club. They're still active, but they're struggling, you know. They used to have uh, their own building and stuff, and they gave it up, and they meet now in the basement of the church and stuff. But there's a, uh, you know, that's one of the downfalls, I fear, of the Internet is you can go to Facebook and Twitter and do this socialization without going Wednesday night to a meeting All and right, stuff. Yep, and yep. it's kind of sad. Yeah. Certainly is changing the culture, that's for sure. Um, Absolutely. How does the society interface with, like, um, you're the county society, so how do you interface both, you know, the littler societies in the area and the state and regional societies? How does that all work? Well, we have uh, a kind of an open line of communication with the state. They email us and call us and, and have, even do personal visits and stuff. Uh, that gets an interest. I had to repatriate uh, human remains a couple times, oh. <laughs> you know, and stuff. And so we have kind of an open line of communication with the state. We used to have uh, a group called SMUG, and it was a small museum group. And uh, we would meet every few months, and all the, you know, like all the small museums in Western Iowa would get together yeah. uh, and take turns at different uh, museums, facilities, and we'd meet and talk about our concerns and goals and things like that. Uh, we have gone, uh, gone out to a lot of places. Uh, we went to uh, Walnut a few years ago and helped them set up their computer programming for uh, inventories, and we used to... Oh, We've been to Glenwood and helped them uh, reorganize their museum and stuff. And we just kind of face-to-face and in-person, you yeah, know, go out and nice. meet with these people. Uh, I, I really to... hated that that small museum group kind of faded into the background and stuff. Yeah, that would be that very valuable. Hey, um, I have to stop you real quick because uh, you mentioned repatriating human remains. Yes. <laughs> Why would you be involved in that? At some point in time, some uh, dental office donated things, and they had a human skull, a real one, that you, that they apparently had to show where teeth and things was at. And I had a box that we used to have a small college here, and I think they had an anatomy class or something, and there was a large wooden container with yeah. human bones. And then the Masonic Lodge used to have a counting ceremony they did way back in the 1800s that they would lay out human bones in, in a certain pattern during their degree work and stuff. And that was something that needs to be repatriated back, you know. Those don't really need to be out there. Right. <laughs> yeah. So when you talk about repatriating, you mean bury them in a cemetery or what happens? Usually that's what it entails, that they take and they have places that they can go and you know, re your you know, bury these items and things like that. Wow. And That's the first time I've heard that. 
That's that's really interesting. <laughs> oh, I could give you all kinds of first. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about publishing some books. What kinds of books has the society published? Well, we had a lady, and sadly, she passed away about a year, a little over a year ago. She wrote a number of little books, uh, especially on the eastern half of the county. Elaine Artlip, uh, she just loved to collect information and stories, and she would bind them into books and everything. Then uh, when I came on, we kind of got onto this idea that maybe a book would be a nice promotional thing. And it's something that a lot of times, like if you donate, you'll receive a book and everything. And it's called A Tour Through the History of Montgomery County. And the basic premise is like you're taking a tour of the History Center. Yeah. But then it goes into depth, and it talks about, like, people like Thomas D. Murphy that I mentioned earlier, uh, talks about, like, O.C. Hawkins that was a hero in uh, World War One. talks about uh, there's a whole chapter on the different towns that started to try to get started. We had over 20 towns that tried to get started in the county. Half a dozen of them survived. Wow. Fantastic. We've only got about 30 seconds left, um, so I'm going to go ahead and take our second break at this point. Um, okay. It's time, listeners, for us to take our second break for a few minutes, and uh, we will join back uh, after the break and continue this discussion with Dave McFarland from the Montgomery County Historical Society in Montgomery County, or sorry, in Red Oak, Iowa. Thank you very much. Hello mates, I hope you're doing well and enjoying the program. Your support is a direct and vital investment in the programs that MicroStream Radio provides throughout the year. Whatever programs you enjoy remain alive and on the air thanks to contributions from generous donors like you. A contribution of any amount makes you a member. Please take a few moments and show your support today at www.patreon.com backslash microstreamradio. Your support allows us to bring you more unique and increasingly valuable programs. We thank you so much. You're listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. If you enjoy the show, then please tell all your friends, family, neighbors, pals, business associates, colleagues, and maybe a couple of enemies about the show. Stay tuned for more episodes at www.preservationoaks.podbean.com. We thank you so much for spreading the love. This is Christy Deitmeyer from the Dyersville Area Historical Society, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. This is Sean Thomas's favorite computer, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks. Do you want to be an official member of Preservation Oaks? Of course you do. Just go to patreon.com backslash microstream radio and become a Patreon. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Dave McFarland from the Montgomery County, Iowa, Iowa Historical Society in Red Oak, Iowa. 
Um, so far in the program, we've learned so much, and it's really great. Thank you, Dave, so much for sharing all the great information about your society. Well, thank you for having me on. We were talking about the books your society has published, and you mentioned an author who um, sadly has passed away and who had written books. Um, is there anything else you want to mention about the books? Well, the, some of them are online. She put some of them online, but we have them here at the History Center, and we do have some for sale, and we do have the one that my wife and I did. My, uh, my wife is my most indispensable help. She's my right arm. She's artistic. She does photography and everything, and she designs and does all of our displays. And when we wrote this book, I did. Uh, she helped me with the research, and she did the photography for it. It's a great book. It uh, Some of the things that it does, it looks like at, uh, there was a little community to the west here, McPherson no longer exists, okay. but we have a photograph of it in its heyday a hundred years ago, and then now what it looks like now, and she did a fantastic job of doing the photography for that and taking old photographs and restoring them and digitizing them so they, that we could use them for the book and things like that. Oh, that's neat. Uh, and what's that book called again? A Tour Through the History of Montgomery County. Oh, that's nice. And that's available on your website? Yes. Uh, you can email us or contact us, you know, by phone or whatever. And we we have mailed them and, you know, people come in. And if you come in and visit, we'll even autograph it for you. Well, that's fantastic. Speaking of your website, what kinds of things can people do? Now with COVID around, you know, most of the people are going to come in through the website. What can they do on the website? There are photographs and that you can kind of look at and some information. The big thing is it kind of tells a lot of times the little uh, little things that are going on. People will, you know, post things to our Facebook page. Right. Uh, we put things onto the uh, website, that sort of thing. It just basically gives you a general overview. Uh, if you want really in-depth information or to know more and stuff, it's better to contact us via email or by phone, and then we can work with you. We do uh, a huge amount of genealogy research for people. Uh, we've done legal searches, we, you know, just a little bit of everything like that. But it's the sort of thing that it we dig into it deep enough that it takes a little while, and it's kind of hard to put all of that on the internet. Yeah, it's very difficult. And it can take some time with the amount of records and artifacts that you have um, to just think about, okay, where would I find this and, and then go do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's cemetery records to go through and high school, uh, school annuals, all this sort of thing. The, as I said, we have the naturalization and uh, letters of intents for immigration and this sort of thing. It can be a, a, a quite an undertaking sometimes. To, sometimes we hit the jackpot and it's almost too much information. Other times it's a real search. We had a lady that we had a photograph of Mrs. McElhenney, Ephigenia McElhenney, and okay. we got a photograph and there was a cryptic little note on the back and it piqued our interest and we started. It took us over a year, but we found her whole story and it was a wealth of a story that 
just went beyond our wildest expectations. But that's kind of how it works. Yep, that is how it works. I'm a, uh, I have been a prof. I'm retired now, but I was a professional genealogist, and there was one fact in our family lore that said, you know, my great great grandfather died sitting beside uh, his wagon. Uh, up against a wagon wheel in Ponca City, Oklahoma. And, uh, oh, wow. So I went to research that and could find nothing in Ponca City, Oklahoma about that. Finally found out that he actually died while on vacation in Nebraska visiting some of his uh, children uh, who were having a wedding, and that's where he died. But it took 10 years to get to that point. So I know exactly yes, I what you're talking about. Sometimes what people don't appreciate is how much effort and stick to it in us it takes to do something like that. Yeah. Um, so on you your know, website, can somebody join the society from the website? Oh, yeah. They can contact us and join. Uh, I don't think we're not sure if the new one. We just uh -oh. 100% sure that we've got the membership form on there. But if we don't, I, that's something I'll have to work on and get on there. Okay. You kind of broke up there. I'm not sure why, but there was there was like a a spark, and then I couldn't hear oh. you for a minute. Go ahead and, and repeat that, if you would. I'm not sure. We just redid our website. Uh, we have a young man that's real big on that, and he's in the process. He's not even finished yet, but he's redoing our website. I'll have to double-check and see if our membership application is on there, but you can just go to the website and email us and we can take care of you as far as membership if you want to join and everything goes okay. or if you just want to ask a question that's the best way to go yeah and and can i donate from the website sure oh great so i can go on and say oh, i'd like to give you 25 dollars or whatever it is um that would be great <laughs> yep yep so that's probably the easiest way for people to donate is just go to the website, or, or is there a better way? And Well, phone, us, phone calls, I prefer phone calls and emails. Yeah. It's much more face-to-face -face and personal, and that way I can talk to you and answer, answer any questions or take care of any needs that you have or anything like that. I prefer to work more on a personal basis. And if you could possibly do it, come and visit us. That's even better, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I've got sort of a difficult question that I've struggled with as well, and it sort of revolves around when is history history? When is something old enough to be considered history? And our society, even though we spend a lot of time in the past, our society is changing all of the time, and we have women's suffrage movements, and we have things going on that you know, have occurred in the past, but are also occurring now. We have LGBTQ themes and immigration is real big right now with people crossing the border. And, you know, how do you weave that in and know when, sort of how to adapt to the times? Well, that's the thing, you know, anything that happened an hour ago, as far as I'm concerned, is history. And you always go back to that old adage that, those that forget the lessons of the past are condemned to suffer the pains of it in the future. Oh, yeah. And it's like I mentioned earlier uh, to you, we have this display about the 1919 pandemic, flu pandemic, and here we are making connections with what's going on today. 
with the COVID and things like that, and so many things that we have, that becomes part of the story. How do you connect it? How is it relevant to the past? And the future is tomorrow. Yesterday is history. And that's kind of how it it pans out, I think. I don't think you can put that big a qualifier on it. Yeah, good point. Uh, The biggest thing I'd have to say on that is be careful that you don't lose the history because we see so much of that. We had so many, you know, country schools and churches that have disappeared. Um, The county next to us did a whole book on communities that once existed in their county and are no longer there. And that is so easy to lose. Yes, it is. And it escapes you because you're living in the moment. So you don't really see it, Mm -hmm. you know, and then boom, it's gone. You're like, wait a minute. Understood. Um, Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs that the society has? I I know you mentioned something about um, I need more archive space. You know, um, I need more volunteers. Is there anything that comes to mind, you know, so that you can... um, get it out on this broadcast of what you need well we always well we always need funds that sadly is the nature of the business all these historical societies and museums and stuff always need more funds and more uh, you know support from the community Uh, like i said we've been having normally six thousand plus visitors a year we're down to you know 15 percent of that uh, we miss people. We like having people come. You know, I realize that, you know, we're kind of in a hard place when it comes to that as far as, you know, people face-to-face and yeah. everything. Yeah. But we, when we do get back to normal, we need that. We need that volunteerism. We need the people to get involved. It, it's kind of pointless and meaningless if the people don't get involved and right. stuff. Uh, a funny thing that we've been kind of trending at, and I've been trying to get across to people, that the people that come through the door, over 60% of the people that come through our door are from more than 50 miles away. Mm-hmm. The people, we're getting all these people. I've had people from Idaho, Colorado, Minnesota, you know, in the last couple months. Uh, I would like to see more people with the Montgomery County address come in the door, too. Yeah. You know, be involved. So on the on the flip side of that, we know how important. On the flip side of your comment, um, why is that society important to the people in the community? It's it's who you are. It's who your what makes your character. It's going to tell you where we're going. It's like like we've talked about in the program that uh, organizations like the Masons and the Elks and. the Oddfellows that were so important at one time, uh, a great example is the VFW. Uh, the VFW has been such an important part of our American character and our society. We're not, uh, the World War II vets are all but gone. Yeah. The K- Korean War veterans are disappearing. I did a, a history program where I was teaching one time, and I made the kids go out and find a piece of local history and either interview somebody that was in the military or find a, piece, a monument and and come back with a, a report on what that monument is about and stuff. 
we lose that awareness if we're not careful. Right. And yeah. if we lose that, we lose who we are. Yeah, it's so important to a community. Um, it really can't be overstated, I think. it's So for people who are thinking of joining the society, you know, they have you have membership levels, right? Right. And we have some perks there. Anybody that's a member comes in. Uh, we have a beautiful gift shop with we, uh, all kinds of artwork, paintings, photographs, uh, you name it, uh, handmade items and everything. And occasionally even an antique or two thrown into the mixture. Uh, you get a discount with the gift shop. We have like a individual family and then they start growing. And we have a beautiful room on the uh, south end of the building. That's a large meeting room that I mentioned before that we use for all kinds of functions. We have political rallies. We have uh, birthday parties, uh, we have community meetings, we have funeral receptions, wedding receptions, all that. We charge, uh, for most of those kind of events, we charge a rental field to use the room and we set it all up for you and everything. That's fantastic. Uh, for some of those upper levels, you start getting free rentals on that room. Uh, a lot of the larger donors, they qualify to get free gifts, like a copy of the book if they want it. We try constantly to take a little perks to throw in there to, to get those people. We're even working on now a, uh, a corporate membership that uh, they get access to meeting rooms and that sort of thing and talks and books and information through the History Center, anything that will help promote their businesses also. Yeah, I was thinking about that myself as you were um, as you were giving the information. I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, that would be really cool to have. Like here, you know, I, I don't know where I would find a meeting room. I know I can find one in the Family History Center downtown uh, in Salt Lake City is where I'm at. But um, to have that kind of resource in your community, that's fantastic. And like I said, one of the things we like to do, we had a, a gift shop open up downtown on the uh, east side of the square. We went and found a photograph from uh, 1928 of a car show being held in the street in front of their store. Oh, and we had it all framed and matted, and she has it prominently displayed in her gift shop now. And it's, a, you know, kind of an interesting attention getter and conversation starter and things like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you mentioned earlier about genealogy research services. Um, is there a cost to that? We usually just ask you that you donate. Okay. You know, in accordance with the amount that we provide you. If we don't come up with much, we don't expect a whole lot. We'll get a, a lot and not. I had somebody call one time and their family was here for about a year and a half they rented a house, worked at an hourly job, and then moved on. Well, that doesn't leave much of a historical mark. Right. Other people, you know, we find court records, we find business records, so we might find their immigration, we might find their Masonic membership, and we find this huge, huge, you know, a stack of photographs, uh, yearbook pictures, that sort of thing. Typically, people are pretty generous about that, and we hope they keep doing that because that's what really keeps us going and everything and then supporting the, the center, too. Yeah. In all of my time working with historical societies, and I've worked with a lot of them, 
I always join the society uh, first. If I'm expecting their help, I join the society. Mm-hmm. And then I give uh, some money to the society to help support. You may or may not find exactly what you're looking for. It depends, again, on so many factors, as you mentioned. But it's always good manners, I think, just to join the, the society. They're working hard for you. They're digging through records. You don't realize what goes on behind the scenes. Uh, I can only reiterate that. That is Sometimes it becomes digging through old newspapers and old file cabinets and everything like that to find what you want or need and to make it rewarding for you. Yeah. Um, I want to remind the listeners of how to connect with someone at the Society. Um, the website is www.mocochistorycenter.org. Uh, the phone number is 712-623-2289. And the email is mchsociet, uh, and then an at. So Societ is society without the Y, then an at sign, myfmtc.com. Any other ways, Dave, that besides what I've mentioned to, for them to contact? You can always call, come and knock on our door. Oh, We're that's here. a good one. Yep, that's a good one. Uh, okay, is there any other information or message you want to get to the community? I know I've asked that a couple of times, but we're trending to wrap up now, and uh, so this is your opportunity. I hope we've covered uh, enough. and I mean, I could have went on for hours and probably put everybody to sleep, but I just hope we got enough across to pique your interest. Well, Dave, I'm very, very grateful for you spending time with us today. I have learned so much and had a great time listening to the stories and the history. I'm really glad to meet you, and it's been truly inspiring uh, how much you and your society do to help the community. You're really embedded into the fabric of the community, and that is great to hear. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for all your support and lovely comments. Uh, It means the world to us. And with that, We'll go ahead and end our time with Dave McFarland, the director of the Montgomery County Historical Society in Red Oak, Iowa. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap up coming up next. We'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. This is Anna. You're listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks. And welcome back. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe. What a great individual Dave McFarland is. It's clear that Dave is really missing social interactions with local people, as in visitors and especially volunteers. He mentioned that 60% of the visitors coming to the History Center this year live further than 50 miles from the center. Dave loves to approach the education of history with the public by telling stories. A quote from Dave that I liked is, History is not about the artifacts. Rather, it's about the lives and characters these people had and how that's still applicable to us today. That is what makes history interesting. So, 
Listeners in Montgomery County, please provide some neighborly help to Dave and the Montgomery County Historical Society by washing your hands really well, putting on your best mask, and paying a visit to the History Center to volunteer, to donate, and to learn. If you don't care to tour the exhibits and touring the historic buildings on the site, perhaps you can make sure your membership is up to date and then hang out in the gift shop. Using your member discount, you can even get an autographed copy of the book, A Tour Through the History of Montgomery County and the Montgomery County History Center, written by Dave McFarland. You can inquire about the genealogy of your family, or you can sit comfortably in The Pit, which Dave says was designed specifically for visitors to sit and chat. A nice touch. Sitting there, you can most likely take in the Red Oak Community Growth Timeline murals on the walls, or you can take a look at the exhibit comparing the 1917-1918 Spanish flu, which was in the land a hundred years ago, to the COVID monster in the land today. Dave also mentioned that because of COVID, the number of visitors fell from an average of 6,000 per year to just 15% of that total this year. This impacts the society funds coming in. And so while you're there, whether you're asked to or not, donate a little something something, okay? Dave mentioned that the center is running low on archive space, funding, and shelves for books. So thanks for your support. We can help show Dave that the old adage is true. It is always darkest before the dawn. So let's recap the show. Dave relayed the story about how the society received two sets of human remains as part of donations and so needed to do the right thing and repatriate these human skeletons by interring them properly, which was done. Dave is undoubtedly an expert on the history of the county and working with his wife, authored the book entitled A Tour Through the History of Montgomery County and the Montgomery County History Center. And Dave is now working on another book about Jason Packard from the 1850s. Dave and I chatted about how the Historical Society saved the oldest church building in the county and how you can see this at the center. We talked about the Thomas Murphy Company, what they did as a business and how someone has purchased the building and is renovating it in the midst of the COVID pandemic. He discussed the annual Junction Day celebrations and the corn boil. I really enjoy a good corn boil, nothing like it. Dave reviewed the historic buildings the Society maintains on the History Center property. Many excellent buildings and examples of building styles from the past. Dave talked about the history of Red Oak and the county, the influential businessmen of the area by the surnames of Houghton and Coolbaugh and how the society was instrumental in completing the research to get a declaration on a portion of the downtown Red Oak as a historic district. Dave and I chatted about the fantastic town square in Red Oak. It's just excellent how the community keeps it maintained, places flags on appropriate holidays to remember those fallen and those returned. Dave related the story about how a Red Oak native son was lost forever when the battleship Maine was sunk during the Spanish-American War and how the community melted down portions of the actual battleship 
and made a monument to honor this fallen soldier. Dave talked about his childhood in Villisca, Iowa, and how in the early 20th century there was a murder of an entire family of Joe and Sarah Moore. The house still exists and is being open to the public for sightseers to visit. Dave gave us information on how the town of Red Oak was started. And lastly, I'd like to leave listeners with a couple of quotes from Dave McFarland showing the passion that this man has for the work he does and the community. As Dave and I were discussing when do events unfolding in our time become history, Dave said, quote, We have to be very careful that we don't lose history without even noticing it. There are multiple examples of towns that have vanished and churches that are now gone, and we were not able to preserve their history before they were gone. I like that one. As we were talking about the value of the Montgomery County Historical Society to the county, Dave said, quote, If we lose the awareness of the character, values, and sacrifices of those who went before us, then we will lose who we are. I really think that's very profound and wise words and so true. We are bound to suffer the same issues of the past if we cannot remember our history and compare it to the problems of today. Man, what an exciting time for the Montgomery County Historical Society. I congratulate the community on having the foresight to invest in the facility where the home of the society is. Now it's time to do a bit more to ensure the facility remains fit for purpose during the 21st century. If you're a listener in Montgomery County, or if you're a listener researching family history in the Montgomery County area, and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the society. Right now, volunteers, donations, and visitors are needed because COVID has taken its toll. The Montgomery County Historical Society's website is www.mocohistorycenter.org. Their phone number is 712-623-2289. And finally, their email is mchsociet at myfmtc.com. I hope this program helps the audience understand how valuable the Montgomery County Historical Society is to the community and what kinds of help they need right at this moment in time due to our old friend COVID. Please do what you can. The Montgomery County Historical Society is truly a value add to the community and definitely one of our nation's preservation oaks. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Simba Bird, Scott Holm, Feslian Studios, Tim McMorris, and timmcmorris.com. MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. The broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be commercially rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere for commercial purposes without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time for another episode of Preservation Oaks.